coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. And now serving our spring drinks. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. Do you remember what your life was like around this time three years ago? It was early March of 2020 when we were becoming aware of the increasing threat of COVID-19. Hard to believe it's been three years, right? Since then, in the Roanoke City Allegheny Health District, more than 82,000 cases of COVID have been recorded and more than 1,100 people died from the virus. But so much has changed in that time, so too has our relationship with the virus. During her recent teleconference, we asked the head of the health district to reflect on this anniversary that is both somber and celebratory. Dr. Cynthia Morrow says, there's so much we've learned from COVID-19. And while it's hard to extract silver linings from tragedy, there is a lot for public health leaders to be grateful for. I do think that it is important for all of us to take what we can from it. Um, what I am the most thankful for is the community partnerships that we developed, including our relationships with the media to help us get good information out to our community members. Um, I'm so thankful for our healthcare delivery system, for all of the, the healthcare workers who were by our side um, throughout this really thankful for the community partners. We all know that we had a really challenging situation with hepatitis A. And I think because of COVID, we were able to really pivot to how do we vaccinate individuals who are at risk for hepatitis A, um, working with our population of, of individuals who use injection drugs who were disproportionately impacted by this. We couldn't have done any of that without our community partners. Um, and then of course, you know, selfishly, I'm incredibly thankful for this team that we have at the Roanoke City Allegheny Health Districts. We have had a public health workforce here who's really um, disproportionately burdened by by needing to respond to this pandemic over the, especially the first 18 months, two years. And um, now we're all, you know, just really excited about the work that we can do in our community we, we still have COVID here. It's going to be with us. Um, we have the tools that we need to keep it in check. Um, and now we can have that, that energy um, and go towards looking at other things like substance use disorder, addressing invasive group-based strep. Um, we're, we're, we're looking forward to doing some strategic planning around community engagement and, and what can we do to better serve our community 
um, teen pregnancy prevention, STI, sorry, sorry sexually transmitted disease. Um, how do we decrease the, the incidence of our sexually transmitted infections, um, particularly in our younger populations? So there are a lot of things that we weren't able to do during the pandemic, but our partnerships that we grew over the last three years has put us in a much better position to, to respond to other threats to the public's health. And then, of course, um, while we never want to get lessons in how we can improve our preparedness, the last three years has provided lots of lessons for how we can prepare um, if, we, if we do have another, not COVID hopefully, but if we do have another significant public health threat, we now know how we can stand up testing sites, vaccination sites, how we can really leverage our community partners and our our healthcare, our healthcare delivery systems. Um, I could not have asked for a better partner than Carilion Clinic, who really stepped up to the plate to to protect this community every step of the way. Apart from those community partnerships, what tools developed out of responding to the pandemic that are here to stay? Well, I think that our reporting systems have have dramatically improved. Um, one of the things, so you know, a lot of the dashboards are inform so reporting systems, and then sharing information with the public. Um, I think having community dashboards from the beginning on the numbers that we were we were testing, the numbers that we were vaccinating, that increases transparency of what we're doing at the Virginia Department of Health. That was a, a central office initiative, but here at the Roanoke City Allegheny Health Districts, how can we get good information out to the public so that they can make the best decisions for themselves and their families? Um, having those dashboards and having built that capacity is really important, not only in um, responding to a public health threat, but in moving forward on um, looking at chronic disease surveillance, you, um, we have a data portal now that we didn't have prior to the pandemic that is really going to, um, to help us serve our community better when, when we're not dealing with, when we're not being reactive, when we're not dealing with um, imminent public health threat. So I think in uh, clin um, I'm sorry, public health informatics, reporting systems, um, Trying to think of other really concrete things. Um, they're just so, I, I, I mean, the biggest thing is the community partnerships because it takes all of us working together to improve the community's health. I will tell you, I know I mentioned strategic planning, but um, with ARPA funding, with the American Rescue Act plan funding, we're, we're going to start a strategic planning process that's going to build in sustainable ways to improve the way that we can serve our public. And that's going to be lasting for generations. Logistics aside, what do you think has been the biggest lesson for public health leaders in the last three years? I think that the biggest lesson for all of us is how do we listen to the community while we're, while we're also trying to share messages. You know, we, we know that over the last few years, there's been tremendous distrust in some of the, the public health measures and some of the way public health as a general rule communicated. And we have to learn from that. We have to, we have to make sure that we always are aware of how our messages are being perceived in our communities um, because the distrust that happened and the, the gross propagation of misinformation 
uh, really posed a second threat to the public's health because it limited our ability to reach everybody. And so I think that we need to continue. And one of the things that we'll be focusing on with our strategic planning is community engagement. So how do we meaningfully engage the community to minimize the risk of distrust and disinformation? Just for you personally, I know for everybody the last three years were difficult, especially people in those front-facing positions trying to figure out what to do and do it at the same time. For you personally, what has been your biggest takeaway as a leader in the public health space on a local level? And how will you personally take what you have learned moving forward in your role? So this is super personal. Um, I am an incredibly optimistic person. You know, I think we're all wired one way or the other. And I think that, and again, this is a very personal react, you know, it's a personal question about what did I take away as a leader? And I think that I've always viewed optimism as being a really um, beneficial trait. But with the COVID pandemic, this virus outpaced us every step of the way until we had all the tools. And I think that it's important to be a little bit more cautious. Um, for someone who's really optimistic the way I am, it's important for us to be more cautious. Um, I underestimated COVID far too many times because of my optimism. And um, I think that this, I, I know you've all heard me use the word humility. I think that this was a really great lesson for me to, to sit back and be humbled by mother nature, by, by the tenacity of this virus to continue to change. And I think it's important for us to not let our guard down. And, and you know, I'm so encouraged by the fact that our numbers, uh, you know, our hospitalizations are the lowest that they have been since May. I don't see a new variant on the horizon, but we can never let our guard down. And so our preparedness team here and I are, are constantly looking at our preparedness plans. We were just reviewing them again last week to see what can we do. We cannot rely on um I think my my hope that that it's all going to turn out okay in the end. We have to be prepared. We have to, you know, the the the, the saying, um, hope for the best and and plan for the worst. You know, I I think that that um, it's really important for us to always be realistic. And maybe I'm going to have to start to inject a little bit more um, pessimism in my life, not, not personally, but professionally, so that we don't ever get caught off guard. Now, I don't think that our team ever got caught off guard, but I think that this virus was, was a, for me, was a great lesson in humility. The COVID-19 pandemic brought forth one of the most rapid vaccine responses to date. Dr. Morrow says watching the world pull together to develop the vaccines will be hailed as one of the greatest successes to come out of the pandemic. And I think all of us wish that it was even more effective. I think we have to be realistic with 82, almost 82,000 cases of infection or uh, confirmed cases in our community alone. Um, we have to we we have to acknowledge that the vaccine was not the magic that that we'd hoped it for it to be. 
But that doesn't change the awe that I have that we were able to pull together as a global community and create a vaccine that has drastically, drastically decreased the impact that this COVID pandemic could have had. If we look at studies that that try to compare to what, what this would have looked like had we not had the vaccine. We're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of deaths averted because of this vaccine. Um, just looking at the most recent data, people who are up to date on their vaccines are 13 times less likely to require hospitalizations than those who are unvaccinated. Um, and that's amazing. And it's just, it's remarkable to me that we were able to come up with such a great tool, as you said, quickly and safely. And I think that the other thing that's really important, and I hope that this reassures people as we move forward, is that at no point was there ever a compromise to the integrity of monitoring the safety of the vaccines. So even relatively re recently, there was a potential signal of a potential health threat with one of the vaccines. And so they monitored that. And it turns out that it was very likely coincidental. It was that the evidence did not support that there was a vaccine, that there was a safety threat for, for that vaccine. Um, and I think that I really hope that people use this as an opportunity to understand how much time and effort goes into assuring the effectiveness and the safety of the vaccines that that we are that that, that we have, um, and I think that nothing, no, none of us ever expected that we would have a COVID pandemic that would test our systems as much as this has. But my goodness, I look back and I'm so, I'm I feel like we're all so privileged to be um, in a system where we can identify how effective a vaccine is and how safe a vaccine is. COVID also forced the development of testing infrastructure that was at times maxed out beyond capacity. Today, we can take the test ourselves from the comfort of our living rooms. Dr. Morrow says this was another win in the fight against COVID, but acknowledges it has and continues to challenge our ability to know for sure just how prevalent COVID might be in the community. They're continuing to rely on other means in addition to lab testing to keep track of the virus. For people who have flu-like symptoms, COVID-like symptoms, to, to take that test, if it's positive, you know to stay home for those five days. If it's negative, you should still stay home uh, as long as you're having a fever and a cough, but then test again, um, you know, the sensitivity, um, improves when you do multiple tests. Um, so we have this wonderful test. Um, and that's, you know, people just aren't going to get laboratory confirmed tests. And the only thing that's reportable to us are the laboratory confirmed tests. So I think it's wonderful news that we don't, that we can't rely as much on our laboratory confirmed tests because far, far fewer people are getting to that stage. Now, and that's why it's important for us to have these other proxy measures. Um, and I think that hospitalizations associated with COVID are a much more reliable way for us to look at our COVID data. In addition, we have syndromic surveillance. So what is going on in our emergency departments, our urgent care centers, 
um, with respect to syndrome, so people presenting with fever, cough, um, and we have wastewater surveillance. So we can use all of these pieces. We're not as reliant on the labs anymore, and that's that's a good thing, um, but we still have other tools, and that's our hospitalization data, our syndromic surveillance data, and our wastewater surveillance data. So I feel very comfortable um, that we have enough data systems in place for us to, to have early signals if another variant comes along. Over the course of the last three years, we saw channels of communication um, open up and it sometimes becomes strained coming down from the federal level to the state and regional and then down to the local level. Moving forward when it comes to public health, what would you like to see in the relationships uh, on all levels and the pipeline of communication when it comes to communicating potential threats and potential solutions to those threats? That's that's a great question. I think um, the the communication it's it's so important to have straightforward, honest messaging. And and I think that what what can happen, particularly at the beginning of any pandemic, and certainly we I experienced this with H one N one when I was a health director in a different place, but we had to be really clear about what we didn't know. And I think that sometimes acknowledging what we don't know, I think sometimes people are afraid that that might mean that that we're ignorant about something, but that's not, it's, it's really important at the federal level, at the state level, at the regional level and at the local level to acknowledge what we don't know. And I think it's important for the public to be patient. We have to let our data drive our decisions. And sometimes it takes us time to gather those data. Um, and so I think that there were some missteps early on um, where there were conclusions that were drawn with limited data, both making it worse than it was and making it appear to be better than it was. Um, and so I think unifying all of our, our communication around data-informed decisions is really, really important. Um, I, I'm going to go off just on a tangent here. You know, what we know historically, this isn't about communication, but it's about public health infrastructure. And certainly this is self-serving. I'm going to put it out there. Um, we know that we have episodic public health funding. It's, it, it comes in waves that are associated with um, threats. So H1N funding, of course, lots and lots of COVID funding to improve our public health infrastructure. But at the national, state, regional, and local level, we need to ensure that we have a foundation of a strong public health infrastructure so that when the next threat comes, we're not already behind. Um, and I think maintaining our public health workforce is so crucial for our ability to respond to any public health threat. It allows us to have the ability to respond quickly, efficiently, and safely to any public health threat. Um, and when there isn't a public health threat, we know that there's so much that the public health workforce can do to improve the, the community's health. Um, and that's why we're really excited about what we have moving forward um, and, and really doing some thoughtful, intentional work around how do we meet our community's needs outside of an imminent public health threat.
These days, what's the protocol if you do get sick with COVID? Well, Dr. Mora says you'll want to stay home for the first five days. If you're feeling well enough on day six to return to work or school, you can do so, but she recommends you mask up until day 10. Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.